Well, good morning and blessings, my friends. This is Pastor Nick Holden and our Nesting with Jesus as we're journeying in the scriptures in the book of Isaiah. We're looking at the vision and the voice of the prophet of God as he declares what he has seen and what God has shown him and he is delivering what a mighty word that he has for us today. And I tell you, uh, as we open up in the word of prayer and we dig in it and we kind of uh, catch up from chapter 8 and move into chapter 9, I believe these things are some of the most profound, most beautiful, most lovely and active words that we find in the scriptures that are happening right now in our day. And the visions of what is still yet to come in the future glorious kingdom and reign of our God upon this earth. So let's pray and we will jump into this word. Father, we thank you. We bless you. We ask for your help. We ask that you teach us these things, that you give us your vision, that we could hear your voice, that we can walk in daily victory and triumph as we follow you, that you may diffuse through our life the very knowledge of Christ in every place that you plan us and send us, that we may transform the, uh, the atmosphere, the way things smell and the way things taste. We want people to see your goodness in our lives. And we praise you and thank you that you are more than able to do exceedingly abundantly than we could ever ask or think. We want to be your witnesses. We want to be for signs and wonders of your glorious grace, your gentle touch, your goodness that has been planted within us, the very nature, uh, the God nature, the nature of God that has been in us, that is manifested through the precious promises of yours that we can walk in, be established in, be supported by, and that we could delight in as we journey with you and follow hard after you. So we're just asking for your help now. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we jump into chapter number nine, our verse begins with, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her in distress. Now, nevertheless, that every time I ever read that word, nevertheless, I, what I like to supplement in that. When I read nevertheless, I like to uh, bring out this thought in my own way. I try to remember it. It's words like the word behold. Anytime you see the word behold um, given in scripture, the word see or the word look, the word hear, it is to draw our attention in to see something that cannot physically be seen at the moment. Behold, see something that is going to be painted by God by faith. He is bringing us into a realm to see a thing from his perspective, not from man's perspective, but how he views it, how he sees it, what is to come. And it's a faith word. Behold is a faith word like this word, nevertheless. I always like to add to that is that nevertheless than grace. God never operates or works with us in our life, nevertheless than grace. If God does something in us, if God does something through us, when God does something for us, it's always the work of His grace. Gone beyond the common grace that happens to every living creature that is fed by the mercy of God, that rains fall upon us, that life as we know it, the, the seasons, the stars, the sun, the moon, the, the patterns and weather, all those things, the good harvests and the crops and all that it takes to function for this, for this planet, to, to live and survive the common graces of that. We go beyond that and look at the redeeming grace of God that reaches beyond that which is just common and does something supernatural in the life of God's people. And, and he never works in the life of his people, never 
less than his redeeming grace. That is God cheerfully and delightfully gratifying himself for himself in the face of what should be wrath and judgment and condemnation. But instead, because he took wrath and he took our judgment because he was stricken by God, through the grace of God, he's able to extend that redeeming grace to us. And I want to tell you, if he's working with you right now, it is never less than his redeeming grace. And to him be the glory. Because he, he ties this together. We got to keep in mind these chapter breaks are for our benefit, for uh, deeper or what we would call, I guess, more convenient study. It helps us locate a particular passage when we make reference to it. Someone in their wisdom in time uh, said, let's break these down in chapters. Let's give these chapters verses. And we will be able to say, go to Isaiah 9, and we know right where to go. Prior to those chapter and address breaks, all they had was one collective word put together and it could be a challenge to go locate and find. I mean, even finding some of these things are a challenge if we don't spend the quality time in them, uh, even with address breaks. But knowing the scriptures and knowing where Isaiah said what he said and drawing that out, and it is obvious when he says, nevertheless, he's connecting the last thought, the last principle to this previous, what we have as a chapter, this previous word, which Isaiah had been instructed by God. Look back, if you would, in verse number 11, for the scripture says, for the Lord spoke thus to me personally with a strong hand. He was, he was, he came, I, I, I visioned this Isaiah saying, as this strong hand of authority upon me as a father would his son when he was getting serious about pointing out something in his life, uh, which brought the, the idea of, a, of a, a dire consequence for not heeding this instruction. But with a strong hand, he instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people saying that I should not take upon uh, the atmosphere of the society that he was living in. I shouldn't let that affect me, manipulate me. I need God to establish me. I need God to equip me. And I need God to empower me. And he wants me to heed his instruction. And that's where he says that he was not to do and act and think like they were thinking. But instead, verse 13, how does this happen? How do we walk in the way of the Lord? How do we find ourselves to be as signs and wonders, these, these witnesses? Well, we must hallow the Lord. We must sanctify the Lord. I think it was Peter. In 1 Peter chapter number 3, if you're looking at it in your Bible, I'm going to turn there myself. 1 Peter chapter number 3, he begins to tell us, uh, for an example, in verse number eight, he says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. The only way to live this away is that you have a, an objective to live this away. You have an order to live this away. There is an origin from which you, why you want to live this away, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, you are to be a blessing knowing that you were called to this. You were called to be a blessing. Isaiah was called to be a blessing, not to fit in with his society who was creating fear and terror among the people who were proclaiming lies and falsehoods but he was to be an example. He was to be a witness of one who stood upon 
the instruction, the illumination. He was, he was called upon to um, reveal what God was interested in, what God was involved in. He was called upon to show the path of the Lord, the, the, the priorities of God to the people. And, he, and by doing that, he would be a blessing to them in helping turn them and his whole spirit would be different when he did that. Verse 10 says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are upon those right with him and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord, not the favor of God, um, uh, is against those who do evil. God does not favor those who walk in their fallen nature. The word evil simply means it's good for nothing eternally. And God put a strong hand on Isaiah and gave him instructions, just like he gave Noah instructions. The days that Noah was living in were evil. It, there was, it was fallen. That fallenness was being clearly manifested. And what men were doing, the way men were thinking, the way men were walking, the way men were living, the way men were loving, it had no eternal value to it. It was lifeless eternally. And that's the idea of being uh, evil. It's just good for nothing eternally. And God came to him, interrupted him with his grace. That interruption came with instruction. And that instruction came with that invasion of God's grace upon his life to be a difference maker and that he wasn't to get caught up in his society. Now, uh, eventually, when the rains came on Noah's society, it came to disrupt the culture that he was living in, and that disruption came for a destruction. So we could either receive the instruction of God, the invasion of his grace, God interrupt us on the course of living, or we are going to face a, dis a disruption for destruction. And God interrupts us so that we can be a blessing to the society that he plants us in. And that's why he says in verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? A good person, a righteous man, a man walking in the wisdom of God is not going to harm you. We know that the enemies of these things will so that we recognize that when harm comes against the righteousness, the right way, the favor of God, we're not dealing with God's people. We're dealing with an enemy for whom God has given us to what? Not to return evil to, but to be a blessing to. He says, even though, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, that would be for God's sake, not for our ways, not for our opinions, not for our thoughts, not for that which is self-preservation, us defending ourselves, but for righteousness sake. And the only one to walk in righteousness sake, you've got to have a shepherd. And the only way to have a shepherd that you're following, you've got to know his voice. And the only way to follow his voice, you've got to trust him. And you walk with him. And he leads us to still waters. He leads us to the green pastures. He leads us in the presence of our enemies. He feeds us in the presence of our enemies. He prepares a table before us. He leads us in the valley of the shadow of death for righteousness sake, for his name's sake. So you doing what you do for, for his glory, not our glory, our good, but our good and his glory for the benefit of man and his glory. That, that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. That's that youthful goodness of God that blesses men and brings glory to God. It's that balance of being a blessing to men and bringing glory to God. 
blessings to men that don't bring glory to God is not actually a blessing to men. It's falsehood, it's lies, it's crippling, it hinders, it misleads. But when we do what we do because it's for righteousness sake, which is for his name's sake, which is for his glory, not only glorifies him, but it blesses mankind with his presence, with his ways, with his goodness. And as a result, those that oppose that will harm those that bring that kind of life. But he says, do not be afraid of their frets nor be troubled. Why? God's going to use all of that to manifest his glory out of your life. There's no need to be threatened by it. It's a win-win for walking in the ways of God. Either we win our brother or we win rewards for being persecuted for righteousness sake. You cannot lose walking in the ways of the Lord. You cannot lose walking rightly or uprightly with God. It's impossible for blessed or those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Great is thy reward in heaven. So we win people and we win rewards when we walk with the Lord His way. Now what we to do this and to do it effectively and to do it with with delight and joy and contentment and understanding that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, we do that because we sanctify the Lord in our heart. You know, people, for an example, the UPS man just stopped at our house. I just walked outside and he had a package for us and he asked how things were going. I said, man, things are going well. God has has blessed you. I said, you know, people ask me that all the time. And this is usually what I will share with them. And I'm going to share it with you today. All that I know of, all that I know of currently uh, is good. And, and But there's things that I just don't know. There's some things that I might not know that might not be good. But I have a promise that God has already committed that even the bad, that I may not know or know, even the ugly and the good, he's going to work it all together for the good and for his glory in my life. Because I love him, I'm fond of him, I like him, and the more I come to know him, the more I love and like him. And that he has a calling on my life to honor and glorify and go share with others that love that I have for him and that he's working everything out of my life, even the bad things that come my way. He's using all that to bring glory to himself. So yes, all that I know of right now, man, all is good. But what I don't know that might not be good, he's already promised to work it together for the good. So therefore, I still say all things are good. You know, back in November of 2018, I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. That's not a good thing. But see, it is well with my soul because it was well before I found out, even though I may have been carrying uh, a blood cancer in my body for several years and just did not know. And as I've already said, I just didn't know that I had something that wasn't good, but he's already told me he would use it together for the good. I remember calling my dad to let him know after talking, of course, with my, my bride who was with me when we found out. And we had already shared, even though this was uh, called us off guard, we wasn't, didn't know it was coming. But prior to that, uh, we, we always remind each other that, that it is well. It is well. Even, even the bad, it is well. Even the ugly things of life, it is well because of him who makes all things well in our life. And we are committed to that. We trust that. We believe that. And we're going to continue to walk in that. But when I called my dad, the first thing he said was, Nick, I sure, if I could trade with you, 
I would do it. I would trade with you in a heartbeat. And I said, Daddy, I know you would. I know you would trade with me, but you can't. You can't. You can't trade with me. But I can tell you somebody who has traded with me. He took this old corrupt life, this old condemned life, this corrupt blood of mine, and he traded that for his righteousness. He's traded with me. Oh, glory be to God. He took my foulness, the, the worst of me for the best of him, and he traded with me. And I cannot help but sanctify the Lord God in my life so that when people recognize his joy and his gladness and his hope in his peace in my life, that I, I, I'm delighted to tell them who he is, he, who the, my hope is, who my gladness is, who is the joy of my life, who is the peace of my life. So when Isaiah was, was told to hallow, sanctify the Lord, God in your life, so that no matter what you have to face, he is the priority, the fear. He is the one you tremble before so that you'll be ready to give a reason for the hope, for the hope, a defense, a word, an, a, a, a word, an unashamed word to everyone who asks for the hope that is in you. And you do that with meekness and trembling for, before God, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, you don't defend yourself. Those who revile your good conduct in Christ, you don't defend yourself, that you may be ashamed. That's the whole point they're trying to shame you for. It is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. I want to tell you in here today, he told Isaiah, no different than Peter says today, that look, get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. This life is tough. The common events are going to come on every single one of us. You are going to get things, have things, go through things, see things that just are not good in this troublesome world we live in. Do not let that frustrate you. Don't let it cripple you. You need to be established. You need to have a support. You need to be grounded in the truth and God's wisdom. And that's exactly what he came to tell Ahaz. Look back, if you would, in chapter number 7, chapter number 7 in Isaiah, and look in verse Number nine, he says, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia, son, that would be Pekah. If you, Ahaz, if Nick, you do will not believe, surely you shall not be established. You shall not be undergirded. You shall not be uh, supported. You shall not be sustained. You shall become shaken. You will become unstable. You will be exactly what was happening with Ahaz when he was blown away, when he was swayed by the news of what was happening in his day. This instability, being frustrated, being stressed and unstable is a, is a, a picture of the lack of faith in the treasured eternal promises of God. You take water for an example. Water is manipulated by its environment. Whatever you put water in, that is going to be the result of water. For an example, you can take a glass of water and put it out on the counter and that water will eventually become room temperature. You take that same water and put it in a freezer and that water is going to conform to its environment. It's going to freeze and turn into ice. You take that same water, put it back on the table, 
and it's going to return back to room temperature in due time. It's a conformer. It's manipulated by its environment. You take that water and put it in a pot and you put it on the stove and you heat it up, that water is going to turn into steam. Why? Water is completely at the mercy of its environment. That water that is on a lake or a river or a pond that has the wind blow on it, that water is going to be pushed by the wind. Whatever environment that water is in, it is going to be controlled by that environment. And that is a reason why when Jacob blessed his 12 sons and he came to his firstborn son, Reuben, he said, Reuben, you have everything that is, is excellent to be. Uh, great in this life that you live. But here's the, here's the hiccup. Here, here's the problem. You are as unstable as water. You are controlled by the circumstances that you're placed in. The circumstances of life, whether they be good, you're up. When they're bad, you're down. When they're balanced, you're balanced. But it's not because of uh, who you're trusting. It's not because you're walking with the Lord. It's because you're unstable as water. You are manipulated by your surroundings, by your environment. And that's where James, James comes in and says, Look, if a man believes that God has wisdom for the problems of life, and he does, God is the master teacher. We are his disciples. If we're facing a problem in life, we go to the teacher. Teachers always have an answer key to the problems that they give us. No te teacher ever gives a test without an answer key. They always have the solution to a problem. So the problems are not a problem for the teacher. The problems are just testing to the students to know where the student is at in his journey. So when the student doesn't have a solution or an answer to the problem, he goes to the one who has the skill, the wisdom, to solve the problem. And that's where God says, if, if a man approaches me and he doesn't believe that I have wisdom to answer the problems that he's having, that same man can't expect anything from me. Why? Because he is as unstable as water. He is tossed to and fro. He is double-minded in all his ways. Ahaz operated in unbelief. He was unstable. He was blown away by the circumstances of his day. He was as unstable as water. But God, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his gentleness, extended that invitation to say, I will stable you. I will support you, but it's always going to be based on belief. You have to put your confidence in me. I will not stabilize you. I will not support you. I will not strengthen you. I will not solidify you. I will not confirm you if you do not trust my word, if you do not trust me enough to trust my word. And Isaiah Chapter number 33. Look in Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33, we have this great word. Man, this blesses me. In verse number 5 of Isaiah 33, it says, The Lord is exalted. And all God's people said, Yes and Amen. So let us magnify Him then. For He dwells on high. He has filled Zion, it's him, not man, but he fills it with justice and righteousness. And then notice verse 6, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times, of your days, anytime. If you're ever going to be stable, if you're ever going to be established, if you're ever going to be strengthened in the justice and the righteousness of God, God's way, it is going to be through wisdom and knowledge. And remember, what is the beginning? What's the ABCs? What's the foundation of wisdom and knowledge? It is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord gives place and priority and purpose to God. The fear of the Lord 
We run to God for our refuge. We run for God for our rightness. We run to him for the solutions and the answers to life because he has precedence. He has priority. Why? We sanctified the Lord God in our heart. He is the one. That's why the passage says wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times in any age and the strength of your deliverance, the strength of your salvation, the strength of anything God does to work out his kingdom, which he was doing in Isaiah's life, wanted to do in Ahaz's life, wanted to do in Judah's life, but was not because wisdom and knowledge they had turned away from. They had turned away from the fear of God. Therefore, salvation was far from them because they were operating in wrongness. They were operating wickedly. So that was far from them. And that's why he says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. It is a treasure that he deposits, that he shares that he gives to us. It is a treasure that we don't want to release. We want to hold on to it. Very similar how the the Bible teaches us to buy the truth and do not sell it. That is, we do whatever it costs to gain the truth. Whatever it costs, we, we, we we will do to know the truth so that we can have wisdom and knowledge and operate within the fear of the Lord so that we can be established, that we can be solidified, that we can be stable. And anything other than that is going to be what? Shakeable, going to be movable. It's going to be in a position that you are rattled and swayed and blown like water upon a lake with the wind behind it. I think it is in Psalm 119. Let me see, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 in verse 165 says this, Great peace have those who love your law. That is the way of God. Those that love God and love his neighbor who want to walk in the way of God. And listen, and nothing causes them to stumble. They are not quickly moved. Why? They're unshakable. Why are they unshakable? Because they put their confidence in the Lord. They have feared God. They have the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. Yes, not all wisdom and not all knowledge, but they don't have to have all wisdom and all knowledge They just need the fear of God and that fear of the Lord, the foundation begins to teach them the wisdom and the knowledge of God and that becomes their stability. And in that stability comes the product of God's peace. God's peace, great peace have they that trust in the Lord. The scripture says you will keep them in perfect peace whose mind is fixed or stayed upon the Lord because he trusts in thee. You see, great peace have those who love. We, what we love, we treasure. And what we treasure and love, we trust. So that's saying we trust you, God. We trust your way. God keeps them in peace. That makes them stable and strong because they simply believed God and they believed his word. They sanctified the Lord God in their heart. And as a result, what do we see? We see um, men and women who are being used. Their families are being used. They are, God is a sanctuary for them. And they're not turning to uh, the darkness. They're not turning to the ways that are around them that is deceiving and misleading and misguiding and bringing more darkness into their life and living in that dimness and that gloom. No, not at all. 
They are walking in the light, in the illumination of the Lord. And the Word of God is a light. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It illuminates our steps right before us. It illuminates the path down from us. It's a light that draws us toward the direction that God is leading us in. Oh, how we need the revelation of God's Word as the Bereans, for an example, when Paul went and preached Christ to them, it says that they were more noble than the rest of those around them from Thessalonica and abroad. What did they do? When Paul preached Christ, they searched the scriptures. What scriptures? The scriptures we read in the day. They searched the scriptures. They searched the word of God to see if what he proclaimed was true, if it was authentic. So if anybody, we've already talked about this, but I, I just, I have to keep reminding people, I've got to remind myself, anybody that would instruct you not to search the scriptures to validate what they are saying is authentic and true is a false prophet. That is a false teacher. And that's what Peter said. Look, there were false prophets among them. And that day, and you could anticipate there will be false teachers in your day. And these false teachers, they will market themselves, they will market their message, and they will, they will sell themselves over proclaiming the message of Christ. Even if what they say sounds good, it has logic to it, it has all those things involved in it, if they deviate if they ask you to deviate and they put more emphasis on their message and their methods and their means and their motives and, and, and encourage you to avoid looking back to see what God has already proclaimed to solidify and stabilize what he would do, what he has done, and even what he plans to do, you know you are dealing with a false teacher. No matter their following or how big they may be, stay away from their error and help other people get away from it as well. So back to chapter 9 in verse number 1. Nevertheless, those that chose not to heed the message and would see calamity come, see the dimness come into their life, see the darkness continue to get dark. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, how the Jews reckon their time. You know, their days begin at six in the evening, go through the evening and the night. They wake up to a new dawn the next morning and they spend the rest of the day and then the, the evening begins to close at dusk. And that, that's a great picture of what life is about. You know, really, that's how, how things go. There's a dimness at dusk that turns to dark, but then there's a dawning of a new day. And that speaks of the history of us in this world. There was a, 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 a dimness that led into darkness, and that darkness dawned to a new day of when Christ, the morning star, rose in our hearts. We, we had this sense of, of light, and that light just kept getting dimmer for us as the law continued to show us our iniquity and our ways, and, and that we were transgressors, and we went through this darkness, but there was this darkness that was the lead to a dawning of a new day of that great and morning star who would rise in our heart and shed light on us. And you see, these people in this northern region of Galilee is what he says. He says, look, it's going to be different. Things are have been dim. Things are going to get dark. But there is a dawning of light promised and coming. He says, as when at first they lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavy, heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. He's talking about those northern areas of Israel who watched the Assyrians come in and overthrow Samaria and Israel. They were dispersed. They've sat in that darkness and they were influenced with these foreign ways. Life became dim and dark. 
but there was a promise of light that was to come. And that's what we see in verse number two. The people who walked in that darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined or a light has dawned. This is used by Matthew in chapter number four, uh, spoken of of Jesus. Won't you turn there and just look? Matthew chapter number four. Jesus applied this, that this was fulfilled in his day. Where did Jesus start his ministry at? It was in those northern regions of Galilee. In this territory that he was talking about, Galilee of the Gentiles, occupied by all these foreigners that came in from all over. That was the problem that the people in Judah had such a major issue with those of the northern ten tribes with Samaria because it was so inter it mingled with foreign nations. You can read about that in Second Kings chapter number seventeen. What happened was when the Assyrian army overthrew Damascus, that is Syria, a different nation, who was in alliance with Israel at the time. When they overthrew them and Ephraim, Israel, the northern ten tribes, what they did was that they brought in foreigners from the other nations that they had conquered. They established their own lifestyles. They implemented their way of living and brought these foreigners in to occupy that land. And you can read all about this and how these things worked out. Remember that Israel's leadership from its inception when they divided from Judah with Jeroboam and all the kings for some 200 plus years were all corrupt. They were based on a corrupt system. They ordained corrupt priests. They had corrupt feasts. They had corrupt sacrifices. And all that was done simply to keep their people up there so that they wouldn't have to go down to Judah, to Jerusalem, based on what God required them to do for these feasts. So they did it to keep their people. Very similar today how we see churches see somebody doing something and it seems to be working for them, so they decide they're going to do it. Youth programs do the exact same thing. And before you have it, you've got just these people who are watching other people do stuff and doing it because it worked. It brought numbers in and people start doing those things and they do it to keep their people. They say, well, look, if that church down the road has this dynamic great youth group going on, we're going to lose all our kids to them if we don't do something. So they establish something or they establish this style of worship and they get all that together. They, I mean, they go and they get all the, the lights situated to look like the church down the street that is drawing the big crowd. Man, then they dim the lights. They got all the smoke and the fog. And, and they, they do all this stuff. And a lot of times, not saying every time, but a lot of times the reason why people do what they do is very similar to what Jeroboam did is that he did it to safeguard what was his. He did it to make it convenient. He knew in his mind, in the way that he thought, logically, that if he didn't do it, his people would go down to Judah and they wouldn't come back. They would stay down there. So he said, let's set up something that looks like it, that makes it convenient for them makes it a little easier for them. And we'll look like Judah and we'll do it in our own way and we'll just keep the people here. Well, that system was set up and they run with it for some 200 and something years. So we have to, we have to be careful in our day of why we do what we do. What is our motivation? Even having the motive of keeping people is not the reason why we do what we do. The motive of, of having more, having things better, making things more convenient, making things easier, making things more appealing is never, should never be the motivation of why we do what we do. We do what we do because we've been established. 
because we've heard from God, because this is what God has led us to do. And if that church down the road is doing that, that's great. Let them do what God leads them to do. The vision that he's given us here is, is not necessarily the same scope and the same reach and the same vision that they may be doing down there. And I don't have to be shaken or moved or threatened by that, well, I may lose my people or our people down to, to them because uh, their, their way seems to be better and it seems to be more appealing and it's, it's hyped and it's all those things. Look, that's not why we do what we do. We do what we do to reach and disciple men and women, to reach people in their sin, to teach people that we reach about Jesus, to teach those that we reach about Jesus so that we can equip those that we teach to serve Jesus and then mobilize them to go for Jesus. That's as simple as it gets for us in the ministry of the work of the kingdom. We're reaching people, teaching people, equipping people, and mobilizing people to make disciples for the glory of God. Not all this fluff and all this flesh and all these things that that people are looking when they go to places. When you go to a fellowship and you're looking for what that fellowship can give you, but not what you can pour into it, you, you're going for the wrong reasons. You're not being led by God to go invest your life in His ways into those people for whom He's chosen to plant you among and to sow you among to do His work of reaching, teaching, equipping, and mobilizing people for the work of ministry. So we have to be very cautious of, of what we do. Now, if God leads us to do things that are way beyond our traditions, praise God, do what he leads you to do. Whatever the spirit of God leads you to do, do it, do it in faith, do it for his glory. And if other people follow it, praise God. But if God's not in it when they follow you, God forbid that happen. We want people to be led of God's spirit and not everybody is supposed to be in your fellowship. God has people planted all over doing different things, but with the same ministry and the same message of in Christ's name for the glory of God, they reach in people in their sins. That's what grace does. Grace reaches us in our sin. Grace teaches us. Grace equips us. And grace mobilizes us to go in where God reaches that. And that we have a body of fellowship to grow with and to nurture and to help equip and to help teach and to know the love of the, the, the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. You can't, we can't know that isolated by ourselves. We need one another, but we need it done God's way. So the nation of Israel had been doing these things for these 200 years their way, not God's way. Well, when Assyria came in and brought all these other nations in and they established Samaria and the surrounding regions of Galilee and all with all these people from these foreign nations, there was really no standard of their society. And you had Jews that were intermingling and inter, uh, having, having marriages and relations with these foreigners. And, and God had said that he was keeping his people separate from the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would know what it was like to live under the sovereign reign and rule of a God who would guide them through life. And that's why the rest of the Jews had so much problems with uh, the Sumerians and those of the north because they were so influenced with darkness from an outside world. Well, the scriptures tell us that it got really bad in that area because of the beast began to overwhelm them. And the superstitions of that day, uh, they didn't have a solution for it. So they said, what should we do? Well, let's get some of the priests who used to live here, who operated in the land, and they could teach us how to appease the God of this land so that the beast won't overthrow us. And the scripture says in 2 Kings 17, you can read all about this, 
the Bible says that they taught them how to quote, end quote, fear God and serve their idols. And that was the environment of Samaria. That was the envi environment of the northern portions of Israel. The, the, as Isaiah would describe it, he calls it the Galilee of the Gentiles. This influence of darkness. This influence of the night. Who people in their mind thought that I would adequately fear God and continue to serve my idols at the same time and they had no problem with it whatsoever. It goes back to that idea that they draw near to me with their mouths. They fear me, but their hearts are far from me. That's where this ideals, these ideas come from, that they, they claim to know Yahweh, Jehovah. They claim to know me. They claim to fear me, but their hearts are far from me. What they serve in their worship is their idols. And their idols are nothing. And it has made them nothing. It has made them uh, blind. And they are in the dark. And they are as silly as their idols are. And they were living in that particular dark environment. But see, the sun was about to rise. There was a day coming. Now, this would be some 734, 735 years later before this dawn would come. And you say, well, preacher, man, uh, this promise was made to them that a dawn was coming, light was coming. But what do they do for those 700 plus years in between? Well, no different than you and I do when we are uh, anticipating the return of Jesus. No different than what Isaiah and what what Isaiah said that I, hey I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna seal up the book and I'm gonna live for the glory of God I'm gonna wait on Him and I'm gonna hope in Him He is my anticipation and however long it takes I'm gonna wait Him out I'm gonna wait Him out No different than Abraham What does it say about Abraham in Hebrews eleven Hebrews eleven says this about Abraham. Therefore, verse 13, these all died in faith, believing, persuaded, not having actually received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for those who say such a thing declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, had they called the mind that country from which they had come out of, they could have the opportunity to return, but no, not now. They are living with a desire of something better. They've been given a promise. That is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham didn't receive these promises, but he lived by faith in hope of them. Romans chapter number four teaches us that Abraham was promised by God of something that he couldn't do naturally in his physical flesh. The scripture says, that in verse number 17 of Romans 4, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You see, there are things that God promises us that are not before us, but when we trust him and we cling to him and we have hope in him, though the effect of those promises are just as real to us as if we were walking in that promise or we can have that promise. And he says in verse 18, who that would be Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be and not being weak, in faith, he did not consider, it didn't even come to mind to him that his body, his own body, was already dead since he was about a 100 years old and that the womb of his wife was dead. However, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, 
but he was what? Strengthened. He was established as God promised Ahaz. Ahaz, you can't see this, but if you will trust me, I will establish you. I will strengthen you. Abraham was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Oh, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So these that sat in darkness for these 700 years had a promise of something. This dawning of light was coming. Now that light didn't come until Jesus came. But what we see is how could they then walk in this hope? They had to believe that the light was going to dawn. Now back in Mark chapter, I mean, excuse me, Matthew chapter four, I'll read this as Jesus applied it directly to himself. In verse number 15, he says that the northern part of Israel in Galilee, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, who sat in the night, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and proclaim to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven. The light has come. It is at hand. It is before you. Take a hold of it. And that is the beauty of this picture even of how the Jews reckoned their time, these folks sat in the dimness of dusk. It turned to the darkness of night, but a dawn was coming. A new day was dawning, and that day was found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the beauty and the blessings of the great hope that we have in him. Now, we're going to come back, and we'll pick up on uh, verse number 6 in verse number seven and on through about this dawning light and who it is. Obviously, you can read this and we know it's the branch. We know that it is the child that was born that would be Mary's child and the son that was given that would be his deity that God gave. And then it talks about how the government was going to be placed upon his shoulder and his name would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there would be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, he would order it or that would be set it up and he would establish it. That is, he supports it and he's going to do it with judgment and justice from that time forward, from the time that the child was born and given and the government, the reign was placed upon his shoulder. The kingdom of God has entered in our hearts. Now the the kingdom as a whole of the reign of God upon the earth has not come yet. That is to come in that millennial reign, but he is living and reigning and ruling within the hearts of his subjects who are his disciples, who are his sheep, who know his voice and follow their shepherd. And I love that last phrase. And we'll talk about that more in depth, but the zeal, the zealousness, the zealousness of the Lord of hosts will perform all that I've just said. He will perform this. It will be the result of the Lord of hosts. He will see that the child is born. The son is given. He will place the reign and rule and the authority and the power upon his son. He will see that he is who he is, wonderful and counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace. He will expand his government one disciple at a time, one believer at a time, one subject at a time. And there will be no end to that kingdom when it starts. It's an everlasting kingdom. 
and he's the one's going to set it up and he's the one that is going to support it and anytime the gospel is proclaimed with power and authority anytime a song a song is sung with power and authority and the anointing of God upon it anytime a lesson is taught anytime that the light of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed that is the direct result of the zealousness of the Lord of hosts so every time your preacher proclaims the word and your teachers teach you the word and your singers sing you the word every time you witness and sanctify the Lord in your heart and give a an answer for the hope that is in you you can just testify oh it's the zeal it is the zeal of God it is God at work you can just say that's him that is him he is at work he is the one fulfilling this he is the one who will see this happen he's the one who makes the disciples he's the one who turns the hostiles into believers and believers into these followers who walk after the Lord he is building his kingdom in the hearts of men and one day one day he will return to this earth and he will see that every knee bows and every tongue confesses I want to tell you it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts his zealousness his zealousness. I've got to ask the question, man, is his zealousness, is his passion at work in me for a lost and dying world? Am I passionate to reach people and teach people and equip people and mobilize people to go for Jesus? Is his passion in me to reach sinners in their sin, to see his government established in their hearts, to see that he sets it up and that he is the one who supports them. Is, is that passion in me? Because if it's not in me, God's not in me. His zeal is not at work in me. But oh, glory, praise God if it is. You can't help but give him glory and thanks. And anytime you come across any zealous person for the kingdom of God, give God the glory because you see in him at work. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts at work for the day has dawned in their heart. To him be the glory. Look, we will jump back into these things soon. God bless y'all and just keep going. Keep reaching. Keep teaching. Keep equipping and keep mobilizing people for Jesus. To God be the glory.